Well, thank you all so much. And I want to say a big thank you before I begin to Graham and for everyone for just the wonderful hospitality and what a wonderful blessing it has been for me to be here and, and not just a great privilege to minister here, but also to sit under the word. I've been so blessed to sit under the preaching that Graham has brought and, and Pastor Dear Moodley. And I hope that some of you who've been able to come along have been as blessed as we have to just to sit under the word and to focus on the gospel this weekend. And I want to really, today, I want to focus on, on the, the title of my message is Repentance That Leads to Life. Repentance That Leads to Life. We've been talking about the gospel all of this, week, this weekend. We've been talking about why the gospel matters, why the truth matters. And there is this saying that what you win people with, you win them too. And I can tell you from experience over my ministry, I've, you know, I've put on sort of like events, you know, with, with you know, all the, the pink and purple lighting and rock bands and smoke machines. I've filled a church with hundreds of people. You know, I've, I've seen when you, when you robe up and do religion, people will turn up for the carol services and whatever. But ultimately, the only thing that really matters is whether someone hears the gospel under the anointing of the Holy Spirit and believes and is saved. And dear Moodley, yesterday morning, in such a powerful message, he warned us in that message that there are people who are falsely converted. There are people who come to church and they think that they're getting to heaven because they come to church. There are people that do good things and they think that's getting them to heaven because they do good things. And now we see in the nation, as we're seeing more and more of the, of the mainline denominations apostatizing, and in my own denomination, the Church of England, which I've just recently left, abandoning the truth, leaving her first love, and wandering away from Christ, abandoning the gospel and the truth. And so we recognize that there's a great need to come back to God, and yet we're so lost and confused in our nation right now. That's what I want to talk about this message. We're going to be in Acts chapter 11. We're going to be in that uh, Acts chapter 11 uh, before we get there, though. I just want to think about our need for revival in this nation, our need for an awakening, our need for God to do something powerful in our nation at this time. And over the last couple of weeks, or about two weeks ago, uh, many of us, if we're following online or the sort of commentary of what was going on in Asbury, Kentucky in America, there was a continuous worship service where a bunch of young people, a bunch of students, there was a hunger for God there where they just met together and kept worshipping for days and days on end. I don't know how long it went on for. It was about longer than a week, I think. It just went on and on. And people online are talking about it a lot. Is it a, a move of God or is it a load of hype? And I'll be honest with you, I don't know because I wasn't there. But I will say one thing. It must have taken something pretty significant for a bunch of young people to want to keep coming back and staying in a place where they're worshipping God. I don't believe that that was hype personally. I believe that God was doing something there. I really believe that. And I may be wrong, but I personally believe that God was doing something there in Asbury. There was a hunger for God. And I think that whether, whatever you might think about that, and some people uh, debate it and say whether this was genuine or not, I think in, in, in the long term we'll see whether there's fruit that comes out of it. But what I thought was the most significant was that online people were talking about revival. People were talking about the need of it. People were essentially saying, we need God to do something. We need God. We are like a parched land in need of rain. We need God to do something. There's so much lukewarmness now in the church. There's so much apostasy. 
And, and I, I believe it doesn't matter what denomination we're in or, what, or where we stand. Ultimately, we need God to move by his Holy Spirit. There's a longing for God to do something, to bring a true revival, to, to bring repentance that leads to life. The repentance of sin, the conviction of, of what's wrong in our lives, and the bringing of many people to salvation. I love that, that verse in, in Psalm 85, verse 6. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? And I, I believe that we've lost the awe of God. We've lost the sense of the holiness of God. This is where, and I, I've felt this more and more recently, God wanting to shake us and, and to show us that we need to have the awe of him, the holiness of God, to, to recognize that we need him. And, for, and to pray that in, in, our, in our community around here in Wolverhampton, that people would be moved and recognize that they need God. We've lost that sense of the holiness of God. We've, there's that lack of deep repentance. And we're going to look at that more later on. But, you know, I've seen a lot of repentance or so-called repentance that didn't lead to life. It wasn't true repentance. It was what dear Moodley was talking yesterday about kind of a, a false conversion. I've seen people stand up at the front of church in front of hundreds of people and give their testimony and everyone whoops and cheers. And you think, you know, when you watch the, you know, the, the athletics, does everybody cheer at the start line when they bang the gun? No. They cheer when they get to the end. People are being baptized and everyone's cheering. No, 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 don't cheer them. Wait till they get there. Then cheer when they get and stand before God and God says, well done, good and faithful servant. Don't cheer when they're just starting out. And I've seen people stand at the front, give their testimony, be baptized. Everyone cheers, whoops, cries, whatever else. And then a, you know, a year or two later, that person's nowhere near God. Back to their old way of life, rejected, backslidden, and I pray that they come back and see the error of their ways. I've seen friends of mine who've had powerful encounters with God, and they've come back and they've said, oh, God really did something powerful in my life. But then a month later, they get back in with a bad crowd, and they're back to their old way of life. It wasn't true repentance. And so that's what I want to think about today. The title of my message is Repentance That Leads to Life. What does true repentance look like in a Christian? And before we come to look at Acts 11, I just want to go back to the previous chapter uh, just to go back a little bit before that, it, across Acts, we see uh, Stephen being martyred. So he stands up and speaks the truth, uh, and, he, and he's killed for that. You know, it comes as a, at a cost. And Stephen was martyred for preaching the gospel. Saul is persecuting the church and then is, is converted on the road to Damascus. And we see the beginning of Saul's ministry. We see the Apostle Philip explaining the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch and baptizing him. And then in Acts 10, we read about this key moment where the penny drops for the Apostle Peter and he realizes that salvation is for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And in Acts 10 and 11, we see this key turning point, which I think for us is also a turning point in that it's that, that birth of the Gentile church. This is a huge moment in redemptive history. And I just want to read, uh, before we get to chapter 11, I want to just read Acts chapter 10 from verse 42. And this is Peter preaching to them in Cornelius' house. And he says, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness 
that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Like, this is absolutely stunning because for the first time the Gentiles are hearing the gospel being filled with the Holy Spirit and being baptized. And these Jewish converts are watching on, mouths open, saying, this is amazing. We weren't expecting God to do that. God is often at work in the least likely people you think he's going to bring to himself. And, and as he's speaking these words, even as Peter's preaching, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who heard the word. And this is really a photograph of revival. You want to know what revival looks like? This is, this is what it looks like. The preaching of the true gospel, the truth, the whole counsel of God. That's why we did the conference this, this last weekend, because we have to preach the whole counsel of God. We have to preach the reality of the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, the judgment of God, the need for repentance and faith. Then the Holy Spirit falls and convicts uh, the, the sinner of their need for salvation, and they believe and are filled with the Holy Spirit and baptized. That's how the church grows. And notice that as Peter's preaching this, he doesn't sugarcoat the message. He tells these people gathered in Cornelius' house that Christ himself would return as judge. He warns them of the judgment. There's the reality of sin, the holiness of God, and the judgment to come. And this naturally leads the hearer to wonder, well, how can I escape this coming judgment? How can I be forgiven? You know, what drives us in our mission is the reality of the return of Christ. That's what drives us. Not that we want to get more people in the building. Not that we want to get a bigger building and grow or whatever. It's the fact that Christ is coming back to judge the living and the dead. We want people to be saved. We don't want people to be lost. We don't want people to be swept away on that day of judgment when Christ returns and it's too late. As long as it is day, we have that limited opportunity to share the gospel. And that's what Peter does. And he gives them the good news. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. He tells them the bad news, but he also tells them the good news. Remember, if you were here yesterday, uh, Dear was, was explaining that to us, that there's the bad news you're a sinner. You need the forgiveness of God. You need to repent and put your faith in Christ. But the good news is that there is the forgiveness of sins. There is redemption. Everyone who puts their trust in the atoning death of Christ on the cross is forgiven. And the Holy Spirit fell on these convicted sinners, these, these hearers in, in that place, and they're baptized. And the Jewish believers were absolutely stunned. And I think it's hard for us today to understand how astonishing that was, that God would pour his grace out in that moment at that time. And I think sometimes we lose the wonder 
of the fact that God has saved us as well. I think we, we sang earlier on in the, in the worship time that, that may I not lose the wonder of that, that I've been saved as well, that I've been redeemed. In, in Romans 11, the apostle Paul, he uses the analogy of a branch that's been grafted into an olive tree. And the olive tree, of course, was symbolic of Israel. And he explained that the Gentiles have been grafted in that we've been included in God's plan of salvation. That's why when the, Gentile, when the Jewish Christians saw these Gentiles being filled with the Holy Spirit, they were amazed because they'd never seen that before. And the Apostle Paul, as he's writing later on in Romans, in Romans 11, he kind of just is almost kind of stops in his tracks and says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And I believe that this afternoon that God just wants us to, to, to have a new revelation of how amazing this salvation is for us. That we sit here today, and those of us who have surrendered our lives to Christ, what an astonishing gift this is that God has given to us. What a precious thing it is. The fact that there are so many people who are out there in Wolverhampton who don't know Christ. That there are so many people who, who are filling large churches, but many people go to church and they don't actually believe the gospel. Many places, there are huge churches, and I've seen many of them, that they don't actually preach the gospel and people go there because there's, you know, there's, there's a worship band or it's, or it's a cool place to hang out. And yet we're here today because God in his grace has brought us under his word and, and to gather to worship him. So I really want to just, just for us to rest in that and to know what a gift that is that God has given to us today. And I'm just going to read from Acts chapter 11. I'm going to read the whole way through. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey, and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, th three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
Who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of the men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is God's word. Amen. So there's three things I want to bring out of this passage this afternoon. And the first one is the grace of God. The grace of God, the wonderful grace of God. The the Apostle Peter found himself, when he gets back, being challenged uh, by his fellow Jewish apostles. They they referred to those of the circumcision. And they reprimanded Peter and they said, you went in and you had had a meal with uncircumcised men. They're absolutely shocked and outraged. They couldn't believe you'd do this. Now, it sounds really harsh. You think, you know, they're just being prejudiced and, and unkind Uh, and and discriminating, but you have to understand that wasn't actually the case. You see, they were looking at it through the the lens of the Old Testament, through the Old Covenant. That's why they responded so negatively. They couldn't understand why this was happening. It was because of their understanding of salvation. So in order to understand, firstly, why these Jewish men were acting so negatively, we have to go back briefly to Genesis 17. In Genesis 17, God made a covenant with Abraham. And the founding father of the Jewish people, there was a a sign of this covenant with with God and his people, Abraham and the Jews, that every male child who was eight days old would receive the mark of circumcision. So this was a sign of being set apart for God. So the sign of circumcision was belonging to God's covenant people. and, And that man would identify himself as being an offspring of Abraham. So this wasn't just a physical mark, it was a moral one. You have to understand that the nations that surrounded Israel at that time, they were pagan. They were involved uh, with all kinds of sexual immorality and carnality and idolatry and pagan worship. Just like the world today, where you look out there and there's all kinds of carnality, uh, all kinds of immorality. You know, we talk about all the sexual immorality and homosexuality and perversions of our day. It, It was going on then as well. You read about it in Genesis, Sodom and Gomorrah. There's nothing new. 
Sin is as old as the fall. And this was going on all around Israel at that time. But they were called to be set apart, just like we're called to be set apart as Christians. They were called to pursue holiness, to be set apart for God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy, saith the Lord. And so circumcision was this outward mark of holiness. And so going back to this this circumcision party in, in the book of Acts, they were believers. They weren't weren't being religious bigots. They were believers. They knew that Jesus was the promised Messiah. They believed that. They believed in his death and resurrection. They had had their sins forgiven. They had been filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. These were true, legit Christians. But the issue was that they didn't understand that Christ didn't die just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. They hadn't grasped the magnitude of God's great salvation fully. And I wonder today, do we grasp the magnitude of God's great salvation? Has it sunk into your heart that God in his grace would choose you and me? And we do not deserve that great salvation, and yet he has freely offered it to us in his son Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Peter, he has to explain it to them. And, he, and so he recounts the events in Acts chapter 10. So really, at the beginning of Acts 11, it's just a retelling of what happened in Acts chapter 10. He talks about the sheet that came down from heaven with animals that God declared as clean. So what God was doing was preparing the Apostle Peter to go and preach to the Gentiles. And, and in that day, you would go and, and eat with them and spend time with them. So he's saying, no, no, I want you to go and I want you to spend time with them. I want you to share the gospel with these, with these people. I, it's part of my plan. And, and then God, in his providence, brings Peter, who's had this vision, who's now open to going and eating with the Gentiles. And he meets Cornelius, this, this centurion, who's a, a faithful man of God. And he brings him to his house. And the Holy Spirit fell upon all of those who heard the message as he did on the day of Pentecost. This is like the Pentecost for the Gentiles. It's a big moment. And and then Peter says, If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I would stand in God's way? And he's saying, you know what, I don't fully understand it, but God's doing something, so I'm not going to get in his way. I can't explain to you what God's doing. I don't know, but I tell you what, he's doing something. It's like, you know, a revival happens or an awakening. People want to talk about it and, and, and say, oh, is it real or not? Well, do you know what? Just let God do what he wants to do. And that's what Peter's saying to them. Look, I, I don't understand it, but I'm not going to get in the way of what the Holy Spirit's doing. And we do not want to get in the way of what the Holy Spirit is doing. And, and this is the thing. I, I love this verse, verse 18. They're so astonished by the grace of God. It says, when they heard these things, they fell silent. They're just dumbstruck, like, What do you say to that? Wow. And they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. God has granted repentance that leads to life. What an astonishing grace of God that he would extend his salvation to people outside of his chosen people group. How good is God that he would do that? And it's, it is hard for us today to fully understand that. You have to understand, if you're a first century Jewish believer, you know your understanding of salvation is very much wrapped up in the Mosaic law, the law of Moses. And you'd understand about the prophets talking about the coming Messiah, Christ, the ultimate Passover lamb. Everything's very much Jewish in your understanding as, as God's plan of salvation for the Jews. 
So you understand that the Passover lamb is sacrificed for the sins of, of God's people, the Jews. And then you think, but then why on earth would God choose to share that salvation with a stiff-necked, rebellious, fornicating, adulterous, pagan-worshipping, idolatrous people? Why would he do that? Why would God want to share this precious salvation with these godless pagans? The answer can be found in Ephesians 1 verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Why would God do that? Because he's good, because he's kind, because he's gracious. And the Apostle Peter, when he's writing his letter to the Gentile church in Corinth, he reminds them of how they used to live. He says to them, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. What a wonderful salvation and how good God is to offer that freely to the Gentiles. And so I want to think now about the repentance that leads to life. They were in awe of the grace of God and they glorified him. God has granted to the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. Let's for a moment define what is repentance what is repentance? What is that? What does it look like? Well, the Greek word metanoia means turning away from sin. And it's not just, turn, it's not just behavioral change, but it's turning away from sin in response to a new heart and a desire to reject our, own, our old sinful nature and desires and follow Christ, living obediently for him because we have new desires put in our hearts. The, the old heart of stone has been removed and the heart of flesh has been put in us. And the first recorded words of the Lord Jesus in Mark's gospel are, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That is the call, repent and believe the gospel. Notice how in the Bible, repentance and faith go together. It's not just a change of behavior, turning away from bad habits and, and sinful actions. As if it's some kind of act of willpower. Because, you know, people do that sometimes. People can actually just decide that, I need to do things a bit differently in my life. There's some bad habits. And I've seen people do this. They've managed to kind of self-help and they've just decided they need to just, you know, get a grip on their life and be less lazy and work harder and, you know, perhaps do, change some things in their lives. And, and the reason why they do that is because they see that there's some kind of gain for themselves in doing it. I've seen this time and time again. You see this online. Twitter is full of, you know, long threads about how you can actually just get a grip of your life. And I, 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 at the root of it is essentially a kind of like a self-help and a moralism and a humanism. And so, yeah, a person can change to some degree if it suits them. And yet, if they have not surrendered their life to the Lord Jesus Christ, that is not a repentance that leads to life. It's a change in behavior that might suit them and some, something they're trying to achieve in their life. But it is not repentance that leads to life. A person must come under the conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit. It's only when a person recognizes, I'm a sinner. I recognize there are things in my life that are wrong and I can't change myself. I need God to help me. And earlier in the book of Acts, right on the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter, he stood up in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and he preached the gospel. He preached the full gospel, the whole counsel of God, under the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit. When you have the true gospel, 
The Holy Spirit anoints that message. When you preach a false gospel, the Holy Spirit will not anoint that message because it's not the truth. But when the true gospel is preached, as it was on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit anoints that message. And what happens? The crowd would cut to the heart. You know, the, 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 the word of the Lord is, is sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts straight to the heart. It got them. They said, what do we do to be saved? They're desperate. What do I do? How can we be saved from this judgment? Okay, you've told us we believe you. Now what? And Jesus says to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, be baptized. Later on in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul, he's preaching uh, to, to the Areopagus in Athens. And he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So we understand then that repentance is a Holy Spirit-driven change in a person's heart to lead them to want to put their faith in Christ. So what is repentance that leads to life? Now I just want to take a moment thinking about what repentance that leads to life is, essentially. And firstly, repentance that leads to life is when a sinner, having been convicted of sin and turned away from their sin and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's someone who has received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance that leads to life means that you have the Holy Spirit indwelling in your heart. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, he says that in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So having heard the gospel and believed it, that is to be regenerate, born again, the believer receives the Holy Spirit. They're sealed with the Spirit. It's God saying, you're mine. You're sealed. You're stamped with the Holy Spirit. It's a mark of ownership. It's a, a spiritual circumcision, if you like. It's a guarantee. It's a mark that, that God has chosen you and he's redeemed you. It's a, a down payment. You belong to Christ. You've been purchased by his blood. And no one or nothing can take you out of God's hand. It's what Dear Moodley yesterday talked about, the triple lock. You're sealed. You're called by God. Christ has paid for you. And you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit brings us the assurance of our salvation. That you know that you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. God is not going to let go of you. You know, there are times in my life where I feel like my grip on God is kind of a bit loose and I'm struggling to hold on to Christ. But don't forget that Christ will never let go of your hand. You may lose a grip on him. He won't lose a grip on you. That is the assurance of our salvation. You know that Christ will never let go of us. So it's having the gift of the Holy Spirit. But also... It's believing in the death and resurrection of Christ. Repentance that leads to life is believing specifically in the atoning death of Christ on the cross, that he died for our sins to redeem us. But also it is believing in the resurrection and believing that Christ rose bodily from the dead on the third day. And that is a crucial part of our faith. 
And I want to just explain a little bit why the resurrection is so important as Christians for us to believe in the resurrection. Firstly, the resurrection means that Christ's sacrificial death on the cross for us was sufficient. And therefore, our sins can be forgiven. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. There is a direct connection between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the sufficiency of his death to atone for our sins. When Christ rose bodily on the third day, it was the physical proof that God was fully satisfied with Christ's sacrifice. In the resurrection, Christ was fully vindicated. And by our faith in his death and resurrection, we are fully vindicated before God. In Romans 4, it says, It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So it vindicates us that we're vindicated by Christ's resurrection. But secondly, it also means that death is defeated once and for all. In the words of the famous old hymn, O death, where is thy sting? Where grave thy victory? When the Apostle Paul preached at Pentecost, or the Apostle Peter preached at Pentecost, he says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Next time you sing In Christ Alone by Getty, it will put new meaning in that song when you sing No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. His resurrection means that we don't fear death. How many people are afraid of death? How many people are trying to put off death? And yet it says in 1 Corinthians 15, For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Christ's resurrection guarantees ours. Jesus Christ promises that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. And thirdly and lastly, the resurrection means that we've been given new spiritual life. The Apostle Paul says that God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so repentance that leads to life is the work of the Holy Spirit in redeeming the heart of the sinner. It's a change of heart, believing the gospel, being filled and indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And that new life in Christ brings us the benefits of the gospel, the assurance of our salvation and eternal life. And so going back to this, this circumcision party, the circumcision that God commanded of Abraham and his descendants, this pointed forward to a new and better circumcision that's a reality of the new covenant, the circumcision of the heart. And a truly circumcised heart is devoted to God. And that mark is seen in obedience of faith and a life of faith and obedience to Christ. And so as I come towards a close, thirdly and lastly, we see the gospel mandate. And in one of the notices, Pastor Graham showed us an outreach event that there's, there's opportunities to take part in mission and evangelism. And we see this in, in the second half of Acts 11. We read about how 
the early church in Antioch starts to grow. And in and verse 19, Luke tells us that one group of people went out to the Jews and, and took the gospel to the Jews. And in verse 20, he tells us that another group went, and went out to the Gentiles. So they're going in all different directions. And the gospel was now spreading ge- geographically and culturally. It was going everywhere. And what is interesting about this is that we don't know the names of any of these people. They weren't apostles, they weren't church leaders, just a bunch of ordinary folk going out. And yet the church grew as a result of these ordinary people whose names we don't get to find out about going out and spreading the gospel. Another thing I believe God wants to encourage us is that every single one of us has got a role to play in growing his church. It's not just down to the leaders, but every single one of us, God's calling us and will use us. And, and these people were being used, and it says that the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The fact that these non-prominent Christians, people who, were, who weren't, didn't have any renown, went out and did that work, and the church grew massively. I believe that if we go out and, and just share our faith and, and, and tell people what God has done for us and invite them here, this church will grow. As surely as God blesses Graham's ministry here, but as we, as we go out and we just share the gospel, that's what happens in Acts 11. They just go out and they just start telling people, and look how emphatically that church grows, as just ordinary people are used. Because as they stepped out, so the hand of the Lord is with them. And when we step out of those doors and we share the gospel, we're not doing this on our own. The Holy Spirit is with us and uses us. And notice also that they, they went out in groups as well. I know a lot of us are quite scared of evangelism. It's not the easiest thing to do. It's quite scary to go out. But they went out in groups. You don't have to do it on your own. They all went out in groups and they shared the gospel with one another. And that's why it's so good that you're going out and, and doing street mission. Because that's how we do it. We pray together. We go out as a group and we share the gospel. And it says, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And I know you, we might hear this now, and, and I know we all struggle with our faith at times. We can all think, yeah, but that was in the Acts of the Apostles. This is like 2023. It's really in fertile ground. But going back to where I was at the beginning, before, just as I began this, I believe that now is the time to long for a move of God's Spirit again. The ground is so parched. Are we not desperate for God's poor Spirit out again? Like, how desperately do we need God to do something in this, in this day and age? To pray for ourselves, to pray for courage so that people would turn to Christ, that we would pray for the lost and that we'd see people come to faith. And as I come to a close, I want to quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He says, the surrounding darkness needs you and therefore it is written among whom ye shine as lights in the world. You are intended to warn and rebuke some, to entreat and encourage others. To you the mourner looks for comfort and the ignorant for instruction. Let them never look in vain. Be the true friend of men. Observe their condition before God and endeavor to reclaim them for their wanderings. If Joseph was sent to Egypt that he might save his father's house alive, you also are sent where you are for the sake of some hidden ones of the Lord's chosen family. If Esther was placed in the court of a heathen king for the deliverance of her nation, so are you, my sister, called to occupy your present position for the good of the church of Christ. Look ye to it, brethren, lest ye miss your life's object and live in vain. 
And just before I close, I just want to close with a, a personal story from when I was a, a theological student. I had quite a unique privilege at that time as I was training at a theological college to witness a revival in a men's prison. This was in Bristol Men's Prison at that time. The, the, the prison chaplain there was leading an astonishing revival in that prison. In fact, he'd led revivals in Belmarsh Prison in, in, uh, in London and also in Lewis Prison on the south coast. But there was an astonishing revival happening in Bristol. It just coincided with my time at college. I got to spend a bit of time there. And I remember that the, the, on one particular Sunday, as was often the case, the chaplain stood up, preached a very powerful gospel message to these prisoners. And, and by the way, the, the, the prison guards, the officers, couldn't understand why all the prisoners kept wanting to come to chapel because, you know, they had the exercise, they had gym, they had, you know, all kinds of different things they could do, IT, that a whole range of things they could do. And yet all these prisoners kept turning up in droves to the, to the chapel on a Sunday. And the, and, the, and the prison officers just kept saying, can't understand why people come here. And they'd say to the chaplain, don't understand why all the prisoners want to come to you. And they're not coming for me, they're coming for God. They recognize they need God. And on one particular Sunday, the, the chaplain had been preaching the gospel in the chapel, a really powerful message. And there was a, a Polish man who wanted uh, me to, one of us from the chaplaincy to, to meet him in his cell. So I went to this, this man's cell and I sat down. I said, you know, how can I, what can I do for you? And he said to me, I was in the chapel on Sunday. And, and I, I felt that I've never needed God as much as I do now. I said, well, do you want to pray and ask the Lord to, to come into your life? Do you want to pray for the Holy Spirit? And, and, he, and he said, yeah, I want to pray. I want to receive the Holy Spirit. I believe the gospel, and I want, and I want to be saved. And so I prayed with this prisoner, and, and, and he gave his life to the Lord there. And then I went out into the, into the sort of landing area, and the, the chaplain was standing there with, with the cell, this other Polish man, the cellmate of this, of this prisoner. And, and the chaplain says, oh, have a pray with this cellmate as well. So he puts, puts me back in the prison cell with this, with this uh, other Polish man. And so I said to him, well, you know, would you like to pray for you? And he, and he doesn't speak English. So I went out and I said to the chaplain, he doesn't speak English. And he says, I don't care, get back in there and don't come out until you've prayed with him. He says, the Holy Spirit speaks all languages. Have you read the book of Acts? You know. So, so I went back into the prison cell. And, and I, 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 honestly, I panicked in that moment. I sort of prayed. I said, Lord, what do I do? And, and, and I felt like the Holy Spirit would just say, well, get him to translate the prayer. So, okay. So I asked the, the other prisoner who's, who spoke good English, could you translate a prayer into Polish so I could pray for this, this uh, cellmate? And, and he said, yeah, of course. So I started praying in English, a line, and then he'd translate it into Polish. And again, I'll be honest, in that situation, there's a sort of a lack of faith where you think, he could be saying anything in Polish, like, when does this man get out of our cell? He could be saying anything, couldn't he? And, and I'm standing there, and I'm sort of thinking, like, honestly, I'm thinking, is this working? What is anything? And then I just see the, the tears pouring down this man's face. And, I, and I, I've been in so many chapels and various churches over the years, I can tell you, I've never in my life experienced the presence of God like I did in that prison cell. And this guy wept. And the presence of God was so tangibly powerful in that prison cell. And I can honestly say, I did not want to leave that prison cell. Sounds crazy, but in Psalm 27 verse 4, it says, One thing I've asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And I thought, God is in this prison cell, and I don't want to leave. And, and I left the prison cell, and these, these two men, it, it, was, it was such sweet, fleeting fellowship with these two men. And they, I left them, sat together, reading a Polish New Testament and Psalms. God had brought salvation to that prison cell. 
And I just really believe that there is something new that God wants to do that is so powerful and wonderful. And, and I, I believe God, God is going to use us if we're willing to step out in faith to recognize that true revival looks like God saving the, the least kind of likely person to be saved. The person you think is least likely to come to the Lord, and yet God can bring about salvation to that person. That God can bring that true repentance that leads to life. Why don't we just stand together for a moment? And we just, I just want to close in prayer, but I just want to pray for the Holy Spirit as we just stand here in his presence. Father, we love you, we praise you. We just start off by saying, Lord, that I repent, Lord, for the times when I've, I've lost sight of what a wonderful salvation you have gifted to me through your son, Jesus Christ. And I'm sorry, Lord, for the times where I have not been filled with the joy of your spirit. And Father, I just want to thank you anew for what you've done for me, what you've done for us. That you, you have, by your grace, you have extended this salvation to us as well as to your chosen people. That you've grafted us in so that we could be called sons and daughters of Christ. That we could be sons and daughters of God, most high, Lord. We thank you for that. And Father, we pray by your Holy Spirit this afternoon that you would put that joy of our salvation in us again. That, you, that where there's unbelief, where there's cynicism, where there's, there's the idea that, that, and I just believe there's some of us here that we deep down believe that God wouldn't use us. And I believe that God wants to say, that's a lie from the pit of hell. I have called you and I will use you. And I just pray for whoever we are here that really deep down we, we honestly don't think that God would ever use us. We don't know how to speak. As God says to Moses, who created the mouth? And God will put his word in your mouth. And, and the word of faith is in you. It's in your mouth. And you speak it. It has power. And another question I feel like God wants to ask some of us, do you believe that my word is powerful? Do you believe that, that, my, that the Bible is the word of God? Do you believe that when you speak the word of God, it has power? Do you believe that, that when you share the gospel, that it has the power to save? And so I want to pray for those of us here who, who we, we struggle to see how you would use us, and yet actually you are calling us by name today to use us at such a time as this. Lord, we thank you for this church. We pray your anointing on Pastor Graham and the leadership here. But for every single one of us, that... Every single one of us stands here in your provident plan. That you've chosen us and called us here today. You've called us and you will use us. And we are your gathered saints in this place. And I thank you for every single one of us here. And, and also want, I feel like God wants you to know that, that you personally are greatly loved by him and you're precious to him. And, and he's calling you and he wants to use you. To be faithful in this hour. Is, is, is such a precious thing and such a noble thing. And God is going to bless all of us who in this moment will stand against the tide of apostasy and, and unbelief and liberalism. And, and when we stand against that and we claim territory for Christ, God is going to use us. The hand of the Lord will go with you as you turn against that tide of liberalism in our nation at this time. That tide of unbelief. And so Father, I bless every single one of us here. I pray, Lord, that your anointing would be on us. And most of all, that we would have the joy of our salvation afresh. That we would rejoice 
in what you've done for us on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.